Hi, and welcome to the Inspired Jewish Woman podcast. I absolutely love and value that you are here with us right now, and I hope you will hear something on today's episode that will touch your heart and soul in a beautiful way. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another fabulous podcast with an amazing guest speaker today, Dr. Didi Schiller, a friend of mine. So hi, Didi. How you doing? Good. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to have you. So I'm going to just read a little bit of your bio. Dr. Didi studied biology at Stern College, Yeshiva University, and went on to become a board certified gynecologist. She graduated from New York College of Osteopathic Medicine, got lots of awards, completed her OBGYN residency in Baltimore at Sinai Hospital, was chief of gynecology at Good Samaritan Hospital, and then went on to be the founding director of the Women's Wellness Center at Northwest Hospital. And Dr. Didi's professional concentration is on pelvic pain, sexual pain, and minimally invasive surgery. Dr. Schiller takes a holistic approach to treating a wide range of gynecologic conditions. We're going to hear all about that, but very interesting. Didi just took a turn in her career and she moved nearby where I live in Illinois to a little city or a little town called Libertyville to take on a position as a medical director for early phase research at a place called AbbVie. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the shift and what you're doing. So Didi is traveling from Baltimore, where her family is, to Chicago. You come in on Sunday and you leave on Thursday. Thursday. Mm-hmm. So you're commuting right now. And we are so blessed to have you here in our community. And I know that your, your family at home, I'm sure we have to share you. But I'm sure they're cheering you on. Didi has three children and a husband and family and community over there. And we're so blessed to have you here as part of our community now. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I just switched clinical practice. I'm actually no longer a surgeon and I'm not seeing patients regularly anymore. I decided that I really felt that in terms of growth, I had always wanted to impact medicine on an international and global level. And I had always been doing clinical late phase research for women's health, like IUDs, contraception, endometriosis, and fibroids. And so what I do now is I actually work on chemicals and compounds that have almost never been used in humans. And we're studying them for cancer, Alzheimer's, thyroid disease, cholesterol. So multiple things that will have far reaching impact on the world over the next decade. That's so interesting and so cool. Like cutting edge. Yes, exactly. In fact, that's how we met. Didi gave a drug to a human being for the very first time. And Mm -hmm. she didn't want to go home for Shabbat because she just wanted to be close by just in case. Because it was the very first time that a person was going to be tested on with a certain drug. And so that's kind of how our friendship began. And nice to have a friend to talk to about, you know, questions about birth control. You know, you've done <laughs> research in the next half hour and give us all the secrets, all the juicy secrets in mm-hmm. relationships and what you've seen and what works and what is great for women and what is not great for women. I mean, there's so many directions we could take this conversation, but I'm kind of itching to start with 
this question for you. And I know as someone that teaches brides, I've taught brides for probably 15 years. I was basically a new bride myself just a few years in when I started teaching about intimacy to other women. And in a way, I wish I could go back to those women from 15 years ago and say, I didn't know anything. I actually felt the same exact way. When you do an OBGYN residency, you're in the hospital all day, all night. You're delivering babies. You're in the trenches, right? You don't really learn the art of what it is to give someone counsel around libido and sexual function until you become a regular gynecologist in daily practice, right? So how common is it for a young woman to come into the practice, whether she's Jewish, religious, non-religious, and say, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. Or let's take an older woman who's questioning why her libido might be lower, or does she have to worry about pain or dryness? And so I think it varies, but over time you learn how to take care of those women. And I was blessed early on in my career to have a few mentors. And one of my mentors actually had a radio show that I was actively involved in and I took over. And I met one of my closest friends now, Dr. Kate Thomas, who's a behavioral sexologist at Johns Hopkins University. And she works with all the psychiatric residents on women and male sexual function. And I actually collaborate with them and speak with them quarterly. And then on top of it, I had the pleasure of working really deeply with the Jewish community. In Baltimore, it's a really cool mixed socioeconomic bag. And it's also kind of multicultural. But their Baltimore City, Pikesville, Maryland, happens to be one of the highest concentrations of Orthodox Jews in the country per capita, like in these few miles. And so generally Orthodox woman who's been in religious schools her whole life might not have had much exposure to what sexual touch is. She might not have watched any movies. She might not have had any counseling around that. So when you talk about how you were teaching brides, we try to orient these young women who are about to embark on a new relationship on how to get comfortable with their sexuality. It was great. It was such an important experience. And I think it kind of forced me to go back to the basics Hmm. and stop just doing gynecology as pap smear, mammogram, Hmm. HPV vaccine. You were able to bridge your career and your community, which not everyone is able to do and how powerful and meaningful that is. My community supported me my whole life. I grew up in Baltimore. My residency was so supportive. You don't understand. People would come and help my husband if I wasn't around for Shabbat or they needed food or he just needed to go out and they needed a babysitter. People were always trying to support me whenever they came and I needed to give back. Right. I kind of feel like you are a trailblazer in kind of setting things in motion for a lot of positive change. I just think to two decades ago when I was a young bride and how my bride lessons, my color classes, it was very limited. It was a positive experience. It wasn't like they show on Netflix with Shira Haas, her very negative experience on Unorthodox. That isn't real. It's never that negative, but it is limited. I agree. My Kala classes, my bride classes also were limited to kind of the Jewish law experience, but less so on how to create positive intimacy. And I think that is really important. I think there was always the positive 
underlying message was you guys are going to figure it out together. Like you have your whole life to figure it out. What we did in Baltimore was really interesting. So what we found was that there was too much variation in how the counseling occurred. So unfortunately, if someone had a negative first sexual experience, they might say to a younger woman or to their friend, right? It's going to be terrible. Just take a drink, just get over it. It's horrible. Right. So right. if you go in with a negative expectation, right. it's probably going to be a negative experience. Wow. Right. Wow. Whereas very... if you come at it from the possibility of men and women were meant to have intercourse. If we come from the premise that men and women were meant to have intercourse, it's a physiologic function that's meant to happen. Mm. And so what we started doing was we started having classes to help teach anatomy. Every mm. woman before she got married had a baseline exam. That way she knew that she was normal. So we constantly reinforced, you will have a normal experience. Mm. You have a normal body. You are meant to do this. You're meant to have a relationship. You're meant to have a baby. So doing that multiple times already gives a more positive experience. That's amazing. I love that. Well, I want to take it a little further. Most of our listeners are probably 30s to 60s, somewhere in that range. The guy that runs my podcast, he checked all the stats. We just get a few male listeners, but it's mostly like the same woman range between 30 and 60. And I want to ask you, now that you have 16 years of experience as a doctor and you've seen so much and you're not that young new doctor that's just like, I don't know, like, let's just give you the base. What could you tell us that you've seen that has helped people? In my experience, as someone that works with many women, I find most women, they're just not acing this part of their life. There's something missing. Even if I had a dollar for every time a woman told me that months sometimes pass without her and her spouse being intimate with each other. And I just... I'm shocked because as an Orthodox Jew, this is built in to the foundation of marriage, that the sexual intimate relationship is the glue that holds the marriage together. And that was really, really enforced and taught to us so strongly. And I know that it is true and it is good. So what would you say to that? We have to realize that human beings are not robots, right? Humans are meant to have social connection and physical connection, truthfully. I think we have to think about that. And so first and foremost, are you reinforcing a positive physical relationship with your partner. And so sometimes we get caught up in ourselves, right? I have kids, I need to make dinner, I got to do the laundry, I got to go to work, I got a laundry list of things. And at the bottom is sex, <laughs> which is such a shame, isn't it? And it really shouldn't be that way. Because the truth is, hormonally, because of pheromones and the chemical makeup of how our bodies work, you actually do have a sexual rhythm if you don't suppress it. And so one of the things I think is first and foremost is communication. The definition of sexual dysfunction is actually a couple that is disconcordant. One wants to have sex more, one doesn't. You know, one has pain with intercourse, one doesn't. So let's say a couple has sex once every three months, but they're both okay with it. Okay, that's how it is. That's not considered sexual dysfunction. But then again, there are a lot of couples who think that they need to do everything else but foster that physical touch. And so there's actually something in sex therapy that we talk about, and that's called scheduled sex. 
And I know that sounds really strange and possibly not spontaneous, Mm -hmm. but sometimes we see movies and we experience these rom-com type of ideas around sex and physicality, like, boom, yes, we're going to kiss passionately and we're just going to jump in the sack, right? But that's not really how it is. And the studies show that if you actually schedule sex, take the time for sex, you can actually continue that part of your life instead of turning it off. And so what I do a lot of times is I notice that a couple is having sex infrequently. I actually used to ask every one of my patients, how often do you have intercourse? Even the 80-year-olds who used to say, what are you talking about? (laughs) So what I would do is I would say, listen, first and foremost, you have to have open communication with your partner. Intimacy doesn't happen if you're constantly yelling at your partner. And I believe that you have to have good open communication and you can't abuse each other. Sometimes we go out in public, we're so kind to people we work with. Then we come in the house and we say, why didn't you make dinner? Why didn't you do this? Why did you? All of that is not breeding intimacy. Remember to have the same kind of politeness that you have in the regular world with Mm. your partner. Duh, right? But but I guess- It does. Yeah, but it's not always obvious, unfortunately. And then Mm. sometimes it's important to take a step back and say, I don't even know what I like. And so I think that one of the best things to do is start by understanding how you yourself want to be touched. In your experience, are women afraid to explore that? I think it's actually becoming more common and they're okay with it now, but there's always situations. Some people were suppressed as children. And so the other thing to realize is it's not just about penetration. So one of the problems that we have, especially when you're in a married relationship is we're going to bed. Okay. It's Sunday. Let's just have penetrative intercourse. Well, what if I told you there's a lot more to it, right? So men generally have a linear sexual function. Women are much more complicated. They need moisture, they need intimacy, they need relaxation, trust. And so it's not so linear for women. And so sometimes I tell people, let's have a session where you don't actually concentrate on the intercourse part. Let's just concentrate on the physical touch part. Let's see what makes you have an erogenous zone, right? Maybe you enjoy having your partner kiss your neck. You need to decide what it is you like in order to do that. And sometimes it's difficult to concentrate on if you're always in your brain concentrating on that penetrative part. Mm. I love what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. But in my mind, it almost sounds like we're taking the the spontaneity out of the experience by timing it. You know, it's it's very concrete. What I tell people is let's try this for a little bit. And then the truth is sex is actually a rhythm. You have a body rhythm, right? For mm-hmm. eating, urinating, sleeping. Yes. So the truth is sex is actually also a rhythm. And so once you establish that rhythm, it becomes more natural, but then you can also have fun with that rhythm. So what I tell people is let's have fun with it. Let's have you, the woman, I want you to initiate in any way you think is sexy one day a week, every Sunday. And we're going to have your partner over here, the male, we're going to have him kind of take the initiative, write a sexy text buy some lingerie, something, anything little just to initiate as well. And so that way it takes the onus off of one person in the relationship. 
And that way you can sometimes have fun with it. That could have a little bit more spontaneity because you don't know when it's going to come from him. Yeah, or- exactly. Yeah. I love when we were chatting about this before I asked you how often you feel is a healthy number to be intimate with your spouse. And you said two to three times a week. And I said, that's exactly what our sages, Chazal, say that was their suggestion. And it was actually talking about a man that was in business and he was out there in the world that he should be active. He should be active two to three times a week with his wife so that it kind of keeps the marriage really fresh and strong. I love it when Jewish wisdom and medical research kind of come together. And I find that in many ways that our Jewish wisdom is very valuable in helping keep our lives strong, our value system, you know, as someone that teaches brides and teaches people all about relationships and all of that stuff, I find it incredibly powerful when what modern psychology tells us and what our sages have taught us really come together. And that's, that's something that I see a lot in with this topic. I think the other thing is, we have to remember that Judaism is not about abstinence. Judaism is always trying to bring the spiritual and the physical together. If you think about Catholic and Christian, what is the epitome for them? The epitome is to be a priest. Where you are exactly. Whereas in Judaism, what do we do when we eat food? We make a blessing. Why do we do that? Because we want to spiritually uplift the physical. It's a merger. And it's a very Hasidish idea too. And so the truth is, people do not know this, that we have a mandate in Judaism to procreate. It's called pru urvu, procreation. But we also have a mandate, a mitzvah, to have ona, sexual pleasure. Mm. And people forget about that. So let's say you had a couple that could no longer get pregnant. They're menopausal. There's still a mandate to have sexual pleasure. So much so that it's written in the marriage contract. If the man is not giving his wife ona, sexual pleasure, it's grounds for divorce. It's very serious. But I love what you just said about celibacy and Judaism is so the opposite, so much so that the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, had to be married in order to serve in the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. holiest day of the year. So it just mm-hmm. really brings that point home. We're all about togetherness. And questions often come up. What is permissible? This is the question. Like people are like, do you guys do it through the sheet? Like, do you remember that movie, A Stranger Among Us from who knows no, back that when? Was so bad. You saw the tzitzis hanging on the drawing line in, in Jerusalem and Meosharim. And they're like, that's how they do it. And we all know there's nothing further than the truth. In fact, there should be no barrier between the two bodies because man and woman coming together in this most intimate, beautiful relationship, that is when the Shekhinah, God's presence comes into the home. This is not something that we push shove under the carpet. This is so, so vital and important and just such a strong part of being a Jew. And I don't think there's anything holier than it. I really Mm -hmm. don't think so. So when people ask all these questions, like what is permissible? So I always answer it. Whatever brings a couple closer together is welcomed and embraced. And whatever takes a couple apart from each other is looked down upon. And that's why like, you shouldn't be drunk. You shouldn't be in a fight. We don't believe in makeup sex. You can't just do that according to Judaism because you really need to be fully present in your mind, in your body, your emotions. You're fully, fully there. If you think 
like the word is lahavdil, like to make a comparison between someone that is selling their body. A prostitute is basically saying, you can have my body for money, but you can't have my love. You can't have my heart. You can't have my emotions. It's just a physical trade. And that is kind of disgusting to us because that's not what this is about. What we're talking about is experiencing something physically, emotionally, spiritually on the highest, highest of levels. Exactly. That actually could bring us into the conversation about orgasm. I think a lot of women also don't understand or know what orgasm is. What's the average age of a woman being comfortable enough to experience orgasm in your experience? I think that it depends on your experiences. So if a woman starts to have sex at 35, It might take her to 38. You know, I think that it's very uncommon for newly sexually active women to be able to easily orgasm, especially with a partner, because they don't understand how to relax. They don't understand how to ask for what they want. And one of the things I would also strongly encourage for anyone that's considering ways to explore themselves is to consider a vibrator and to understand that penetrative intercourse, having a male inside of you is a rare occurrence to give a woman a orgasm. So over 90% of women require what we call the clitoris, the top part, that little like nubbin above the labia, that where the hood is above the actual vaginal opening, that part requires stimulation in order to orgasm. People think that, oh, I saw a movie, these people just had sex and that's it. There was no stimulation of anything else. They feel that, oh, you know what? Only 10% of women can have orgasm through penetration. And I think that's really important. And so a woman's going to have to understand that she likes soft touch or hard touch. What is it about her body that makes her want to have more sex and have an orgasm, get her to that climax? A climax or orgasm is really where you see a rush of vascularization to the vulva. There's increased moisture and there's usually a feeling of muscle contraction, sometimes rhythmically that comes along with it. Sometimes the body, the legs, the arms, the stomach will also become somewhat rigid during that time period. And then there's a period of relaxation. Do you teach this to your brides? If they ask, some of them are a little bit nervous. I wasn't in the place where I was actually counseling them. I was mainly doing their physical exams and also counseling on, you know, family planning issues. Did they Right. birth control. I know so it wasn't also really... consulting with a lot of the big rabbis that were kind of giving guidance. So yeah. you're kind of like at the top. It's so important to be clear on these things. And I know that I'm the rabbits in here. You're the doctor. But, but... I didn't do it alone. I need to give definite props to Mrs. Tova Rappaport, who is one of the Rebitsons in town. We collaborated together to come up with ways to create positive education for young women in Baltimore. Thank you. This is big stuff. It takes a village to really spread spread this. So will you talk to the halachic part of masturbation, women? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So for women, masturbation is completely fine. There is no problem with is, masturbation for is women. Is that according to all sources and rabbis? There's not one person who would not, even ultra-Orthodox or any other type of Judaism. The Torah has no evidence that it would ever be usur or forbidden. Okay. Yeah, I yeah, think that's I really think important should. for people to hear because it's not the same for men. 
that's true. So the problem is that in the Torah, pru-uravu, to be fruitful and multiply, that mitzvah is actually put on men. So men really have a problem if they spill seed. So, I mean, sometimes it's just not something they can control, but we would rather a man have an emission, you know, in the way of having intercourse, because that has the potential to be fruitful and multiply. Right. It's complicated. And, you know, when I say the blessing in the morning, Hashem, thank you for making me just as I am. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I don't know, I, I think it's harder. Listen, we all have our challenges, but to uphold that law as an observant man, I say kudos to you that you could really restrain yourself and watch what you look at and not to put yourself in situations that could be compromising for yourself. I think it's a hard thing, especially in our day and age when there is so much out there, so many images. I almost feel like people have seen more in 10 or 15 years than they would have like, you know, for a whole lifetime. So but it's interesting because I think today most Rubeam stay away from the negative to men. So there used to be this idea to suppress a man from his sexuality, right? Keep him from seeing women. He shouldn't be enticed. We don't ever want him to have a nocturnal emission, God forbid, a masturbation with, you know, an emission, those kinds of things. I think there's less shame. We realize that it sometimes happens. We encourage going to the mikvah. We encourage to be done in a natural way, but there's less of that negative suppression. Mm -hmm. We realize that it sometimes is just not something you can actually suppress and we don't want people to have guilt over normal physiology we want boys to grow up to be men that could go into healthy relationships with women and feel good about their sexuality and it takes a lot of hard work to feel strong and healthy in this complicated area of life and it has to be with positivity let me just put something else out there i think that one of the things that we can do as parents right to help our kids understand themselves is give your kid a hug Give your kid a kiss. I think that there's a difference between families that show emotion and love and physical touch Mm. versus ones that don't. And I notice that. I really do. I also think it's important not to body shame our kids. So for young girls, don't say, why are you eating that? You should be thinner or don't wear that. It looks bad. We want them to have a positive body image, whether they're male or female. So I think those two things could really help your child move in a direction of positive physical relationships. Mm, All very important things. I think I'm going to ask you one more question. And this is something that maybe I'm dealing with on a personal level. I know that as time goes on, maybe I'll feel it more and more. It's aging. And, and how that affects your life. It's inevitable. I know. I'm like 41 years old. You're like, yeah, you got a ways to go. Like there's just been, you know, my shift. dad always says there's only one alternative to aging. I know. Thank God. <laughs> so thank God. Thank God. It. It's a beautiful thing to be alive in this world. And thank God as Jews, we have such a bigger perspective about life and the next world. And it's never over. A soul lives forever. And this world, 80 years, a hundred years, hopefully 120 years max. We are here to do a job and, and our body is just the clothing of the soul. I think a lot of us listening, we know that we have clarity in that. And yet as our body starts to change and age, 
it's hard. It's scary. And I know so much of sexuality, like good sex has to do with how you feel about yourself. I think that that's really important. Also, I think a lot of us as we age and have children, well, why does my stomach look like this? I don't look like I did when I was a kid. I want to be tighter here. I want this. I want that. You need to stop body shaming yourself because you'd be surprised if you really took off your clothes and looked at yourself instead of looking at the mirror and saying what's wrong with you, which is what most of us do all the time. I want you to just step in front of a mirror and say, what do I like about myself? Mm. What is beautiful about myself? Is it your skin tone? Is it the curve of your thigh? What is it that makes you a beautiful person, right? Mm. Physically, pick something good instead of constantly criticizing yourself. That's first of all. Second of all, realize that there's more to a positive relationship than just the exterior physicality right? So you might be a little self-conscious about your body. Your partner might also. There's a psychological intimacy that also comes into play here. And if you foster that by having fun with your spouse, by going out to dinner, by going to a movie, by playing a game, by laughing, anything like that, that creates more of intimacy. But I think we should also talk about some of the things that happen as people age, because everyone always asks me, well, what do I do? I'm 43 years old. Do I have a libido anymore? I don't know. Do you? So the truth is we need to first understand what happens as you age. So as a woman goes towards menopause, she loses her natural estrogen. The estrogen is what keeps the vaginal mucosa plump and moist. And unfortunately, as you age, sometimes that will go away. We know that women into their 80s and 90s have positive sexual relationships. You might need lubrication to counteract some of that vaginal atrophy or loss of moisture. You might need that. You also need to foster that sexual desire again, whether it be through masturbation, through touch with a partner, and those kinds of things, because the studies show that if a woman goes let's say a year without any sexual touch at all, it's kind of like you turn off that part of your brain. One of the things I used to talk about a lot with my patients is if you have a chocolate bar every day at 4 p.m., you have that Snickers bar at 4 p.m., what happens? That Snickers bar is causing a dopamine rush, right? It's causing your chemical body and hormones to kind of like start to get primed. And so what happens if you stop being sexually active for a very long period of time is that you almost turn that part of the dopamine receptors off. And so that's why scheduled sex also helps. So interesting. Thank you. All great stuff. I'm kind of curious how birth control affects libido. If you want to speak to that for a minute. Yeah, sure. Okay. So basically what birth control pills are is it's estrogen and progesterone. And by giving it to a woman, it suppresses her natural hormones and kind of like takes over and gives a very flattened level of estrogen and progesterone. And there's lots of different ways to give people birth control, but oral birth control pills get gets metabolized through the liver. So one of the things that's tied to libido is free testosterone. And women actually make estrogen and testosterone in their ovaries and their peripheral fat. So if you take a birth control pill, it gets metabolized through the liver, then you get all these big fat juicy proteins called the sex binding globulin that snatches away your free testosterone, the woman will be left with lower testosterone. 
that can go away in three months if you stop taking oral birth control. So what are other options? Other options would be intrauterine devices. There's also an estrogen progesterone ring on the market. There's actually two now on the market that you can use too, or you can take birth control by a patch. Those will not affect libido, but birth control pills will. Do you have a favorite? I believe that anybody for any reason taking medication, it should be the lowest dose possible with the least amount of side effects. And I believe that that is really the progesterone IUDs, if I had to choose. The Mirena or Liletta, they're both ones. There's also a copper IUD. So I'm a big fan of intrauterine devices, but I think just like child planning, I think that you know this is something that really is a personal choice mm. and should be made with your doctor for the best choice for you. And do you also recommend people discuss these options with their local rabbi? How do you feel about that? Well, the truth is today, most rabbis, modern or ultra-Orthodox, do have some working knowledge of birth control. An Orthodox Jewish couple usually has the counsel of a rabbi when they talk about family planning. And I think that they should continue that relationship. You know, the idea of make yourself a rabbi is important in our community. And I think nobody's saying that your rabbi has to tell you to do everything, but I think it's a partnership between you and your rabbi. I almost see rabbis as a friend, a mentor, possibly a coach, where sometimes it just really, really helps to talk big issues or big things that you're thinking about over with someone that you look up to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's really, it is a blessing to have a doctor, have a friend, have a rabbi, have someone, a rabbitson. People have these misconceptions that if they're talking to a rabbi, they're going to say, have seven children, have 20 children. That's actually not true. They usually take into account the social situation, the financial situation, you know, the relationship, what the couple is going through. It's very individualized. What I love about you is that it's just how you hold both worlds, like the Jewish world, the medical world, and you're just a really great person, great friend. And I'm so grateful, so grateful to have you as a person that I can reach out to. And I'm excited to share you with my community of ladies. So hopefully this will just be the beginning of many more opportunities because there's lots to learn, right? It's such an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for being a part of our community. There is so much more coming your way. Stay tuned and have a great, inspired day.